and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're going to be discussing a very specific and in-depth area of investment management having to do with the selection of your investments for clients and how you can bring value through active management of equities, mutual funds, and ETFs. My guest today is Tim Riley, an expert and researcher in financial market analysis, specializing in performance assessments and risk assessments, studying mutual funds and the effects of active management as an assistant professor at the Sam Walton School of Business in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Tim completed his PhD in finance at the University of Kentucky in 2014. After graduation, he spent two years as a financial economist at the US SEC, our friends, where he worked on mutual fund liquidity regulation. His research is focused on mutual funds, hedge funds, and other managed portfolios, and his work has been published in the Journal of Financial Economics, Financial Management, Critical Finance Review, Financial Analyst Journal, and Journal of Empirical Finance, and of course, the Wall Street Journal, CBS News, and Morningstar. In 2018, Tim became a CFA chart holder. Tim, welcome to the program. We're glad you could join us today. I'm really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to discussing some research. Sounds like it's going to be fun. Let's dig right in. Your research looks at the broad markets and the effects of actively managing portfolios on performance, primarily mutual funds. How did you get started with that line of inquiry? It really goes back to when I first started in graduate school. Um, When I first came in, it was a subject I was really interested in, and it's what I naturally gravitated towards when I began doing my research. Um, At first, I was doing a few different things in my research, but especially when I moved to the SEC, um, I was specifically focused on mutual funds there. So my research moved further and further into analyzing that portion of the market. And now your current research, or more recent anyway, focuses on the effects and merits of actively managed mutual funds. You did an extensive literature review as a start to that undertaking. What did you find out initially? Well, when we started initially, um, our motivation was we saw in the popular press and among a lot of our peers in academia, uh, this wide-held belief that active management didn't create value. And what we saw was that when people were putting forth that idea, we kept seeing the same studies cited again and again and again. Um, But because we were so in-depth involved in the field, we knew there were hundreds of other studies other than the ones we kept seeing cited. So our goal was to see, all right, of these 300, 400 papers that we know about, uh, what is the aggregate consensus about the value of active management? So you read 400 papers to determine the value of active management in the media? This is fantastic. I can't claim to have read every single word of every paper, but we read a lot. (laughs) But based on your original premise, the value of active management had been called into question in the media based on the result, but the research that had led to that result and perpetuated that conclusion was either flawed or limited. Is that what you found, essentially? Well, you know, every every research paper has some flaws and some limitations, but our biggest focus was that... um, just it was the same two or three studies cited again and again and again in support of this belief of active management not creating value and we just wanted to look and say all right but we have all these other papers and let's take just a more aggregate viewpoint and if you take all 300 papers together considering the quality of each what conclusion would you come to then and what we found was that you know not that active management's great or active management's bad just that there was clearly um, a lot more nuance to it than it's often portrayed in you know the Wall Street Journal or a lot of publications you see. A lot more gray and far less black and white. Exactly. 
Let's talk about uh, some things you've done in another uh, related area. Let's talk about active share for a minute. I know your work with uh, Martin Kremers and, and John Fulkerson, you focused on using active share as a measure of potential performance compared to the broader market or an index. How does that work? Uh, so I should stay up front that M- Martin and his co- uh, different co-author were the ones to invent active share. We've been using it, um, but I just want to make sure I give him full credit there. Um, but the way it works is that um, you're basically taking a portfolio of an actively managed fund and comparing the holdings of that portfolio to an appropriate benchmark for that fund. So let's say you have a large cap portfolio manager. You might compare his portfolio to the S&P 500 and see how similar they are. The idea being that the more dissimilar those portfolios are, the more active management you're seeing. If you're effectively having the same exact holdings as the S&P 500, even if you're claiming to be actively managed, you really aren't. <laughs> so the further you stray from, from the model you're supposed to be portraying, the, the more likely it is that someone's actually watching this door. Um, in that case, can you use active shares numbers as a, a gauge for potential performance based on their active share level for each fund? Sure. Uh, say if you wanted to, to look at, build a portfolio of just winners that you knew were actively managed and performing well. Couldn't you just scrape the top 20 highest active fund shares into a portfolio? That's the type of um, analysis we've seen done both um, by me, by Martin, by his other co-authors and some other academics where they've looked at, you know, does active share predict future performance? Um, this is, there's a bit of a controversy here. There's papers that say absolutely yes. There's papers that say absolutely no. Maybe they don't state it that strongly, but they come down on the yes and no side. Um, but there's papers that show that, um, the more actively managed the fund is, the more likely it's to outperform its benchmark in the future, um, particularly if it's performed well in the past, if it has a more, or if it has a more patient investment style where it's not um, moving from position to p- position very quick, but instead buying a position and holding it for a long period of time. Although it's worth saying with a lot of these studies, we attempt to, you mentioned you sort of scraping the top active share funds and just buying those. Um, we do that, but we're sort of just doing it in the data sets we have. You know, we're attempting to impose some somewhat real-world constraints to that to see if it's actually viable to do it. Um, but a lot of research, um, and particularly a recent paper I'm thinking of, shows that for a lot of these measures, as you might expect, they don't quite always work as well outside of the sample that we study in the papers. And you know, whenever you impose real-world constraints, you're probably never going to get to work as well as you might see it just in a data set on someone's computer. So the real world, still imperfect, still inefficient, still requires uh, a touch, some magic of some sort. And the, the better and more patient that magic or that touch is from that manager, the more likely they are to actually, uh, what we used to refer to as beat the street. Exactly. If uh, the, the big thing with active share is that, you know, almost in a mathematical sense, unless you are different from the benchmark, you can't really beat it. If you're doing the same exact thing as the benchmark, where's your advantage? You almost have to mathematically deviate to even have a chance to beat that benchmark. There's ways perhaps around that, but in general, it's a rule that if you're going to beat something, you're going to have to be somewhat different from that thing. Well, sure. It's the definition of insanity. You can't do exactly the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Exactly. So philosophically, they would have to stray beyond the norm and and whether that's a benchmark or whether that's the entire index or whether it's it's some other measure. uh, Yeah, you're clearly going to have to be different than what you're trying to beat in order to beat it. Exactly. Um, 
that differentiator comes down to to patience and, and management savvy, which is terrific news for all those stockbrokers out there who have been making recommendations and tips all these years. <laughs> um, I want to hear more about some of this uh, benchmarking stuff that you're working on more recently, but we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about benchmarking and mutual funds and differentiation and a couple of other goodies. And we'll be right back. Are you an RIA or solo financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you need some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options and choices out there but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time finding and helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need with a wide range of outsource options and top-rated professional investment management and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a senior representative at 201-919-4838. And we're back talking to Tim Riley from University of Arkansas, who's a mutual fund researcher. Uh, Tim, you've done some groundbreaking work on how mutual funds do benchmarking more recently. Tell us about how that came into being. How did that stem from your earlier work? Well, this line of research really started back when I um, first started working with Martin, um, right when I was transitioning from the SCC to the University of Arkansas. And it kind of began when he sent me a really large data set we wanted to analyze. And inside that data set, there are always two different benchmarks listed. Um, there was the what we call the minimum active share benchmark. That's the benchmark that most resembles the fund we're analyzing. And then in that same data set, there was this prospectus benchmark, which represents the benchmark that if you look in the fund's prospectus, that's what's used to compare the fund's performance. So you might compare the fund to the S&P 500 in prospectus to show investors how well you've been doing. And as a researcher, the immediate question I had was, well, does it really matter which benchmark I use? Can I use either one and still sort of get to the same results? And as I began to analyze that, I very quickly saw that it did make a huge difference, that this minimum active share benchmark that seemed more accurate set a much higher bar for funds to beat than this prospectus benchmark. So that's me sort of diving in and saying, what's going on here? Why is there this large discrepancy for a significant portion of funds between what they say their benchmark is in their prospectus and what it appears like their benchmark should actually be? Uh, tremendous. As, as somebody who's written a bunch of prospectuses over the course of my career, uh, you kind of want to put the best results forward in those things. And I can see why maybe somebody would, would pick a benchmark they knew they could beat to use. Um, why would they stray so far away, though, from, from what they're actually doing? Is there really that much need that investors are going to dig into those numbers that deeply and figure it out? Or do they just take the performance at face value when they look at a brief from, say, Morningstar or something like that? So we've had a lot of really good research papers in the past couple of years that have really shown clearly that investors tend to use the information that's readily available at hand. You know, Morningstar, their star system is very readily available to investors, and we see it has a huge effect on their behavior. If you get five stars as opposed to four stars or three stars, it makes a gigantic difference. And what we see with um, the issue with the benchmarks 
is it's not very easy for investors to perceive that there's an issue with the benchmark. Um, the differences between what your benchmark perhaps should be and what you said it is, is much more subtle than simply, I said it was a large cap benchmark and I bought small cap stocks. We don't see a lot of that going on. We see much more subtle differences that make a difference, but unless you're really diving deep into the data, you're not going to be able to see it. So given that, should advisors steer clear of recommending funds that have a high benchmark discrepancy? Do they, are they being dishonest with investors by something that's that far off the mark? Well, I think based on our data, I would recommend avoiding those funds. We don't see very strong performance from them. Um, we see the best performance from funds that are both highly active and don't have this discrepancy. Um, when it comes to dishonesty, it, it's kind of tough to say. Um, you know, on the one hand, I, I think of it you know, from an SEC perspective. And if you think of the way the rule is written, it's, it says that, you know, the fund should have an appropriate broad-based benchmark. And these benchmarks don't appear so far off that it'd be easy to make a, a case against these funds. You know, it's not as if they're declaring their benchmark, the S&P 500, and then buying bonds or vice versa. These differences are so subtle that it probably fits within the bounds of the rule. Maybe dishonest was a little strong. Maybe they're being a little mm, disingenuous, perhaps. <laughs> but still, you're missing something there without doing the research. So it, it really depends on on how deep you're willing to dig into to the the numbers before you make a recommendation. I think that like you said before, a lot of it comes down to marketing. They're, they're trying to put their best foot forward. And there's a really good recent working paper I was reading maybe just a month ago. And what they showed was that, you know, the, the funds kind of know what they're doing when they do this. And that if you look at the benchmark that they show in the prospectus, it's often different from the benchmark they use when they're deciding how much to pay the fund manager. They typically impose a higher benchmark for the fund manager and they impose a benchmark that's perhaps more relevant given the risk of the fund. So I think it's it's a marketing thing. You said they're trying to put their best foot forward and they're, they're not being so deceptive as to really raise a red flag. Sure, and from a business standpoint, making the manager work a little harder for his money doesn't seem like a bad thing. Yep. <laughs> um, let's talk for a minute about some other types of funds since most of this has to do with mutual funds. Uh, are hedge funds more likely to fall prey to this temptation to stray off their benchmark because they have wider latitude? Uh, it's tough to say in that hedge funds, they even when they do provide some sort of benchmark for comparison, they're just not, they're so unconstrained in how they invest. And the benchmark often has so little correlation to what the actual assets they're buying that using sort of an active share style tool in particular is really tough. Um, because hedge funds are doing things like using leverage and shorting and derivatives, even running the calculation for active share on those funds, even if you had all their holdings, um, becomes pretty difficult. Um, we have alternative tools we can use to try to evaluate how active a hedge fund is. Um, but whenever you get into the hedge fund space, just because the investment styles are so complex and there's so much variation in investment styles, that it becomes really tough to analyze them, even before considering the fact that we generally just don't have great data on hedge funds compared to mutual funds or ETFs. Sounds like the old adage rings true still. Uh, hedge funds and, and derivatives and alternatives should be left to the big boys. Uh, even if university researchers can't figure them out, I don't know how the average investor is going to. Yeah, we, we have um, you know hedge fund research. It's, for that reason, it's much more complex just because, I mean, we have databases, but those databases are incomplete. 
And we just can't ever be as confident that we're really capturing the full hedge fund universe like we can be with mutual funds, where by law they're heavily regulated. We can get data on every single one. I'd, I'd love to, to dig into that deeper, but unfortunately, hedge funds are for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if, if I'm an advisor and I want to find more information like this so I can put together some investment recommendations for a client, where would I go to find that? Is all this available publicly? Is it is it accessible readily, or do you have to really dig to, to locate some of these things? Um, so for ActiveShare in particular, um, there's two different sources for it. There's the the academic source, which is useful for someone like me, where you can pull these large data sets that have these long time series of active share for many, many funds. Um, and Martin makes that available on his website. Um, but another great source for active share in particular, um, there's a website just called activeshare.info. If you go to that website and you type in the ticker or name of the mutual fund you're interested in, you can pull up all this active share information about the fund and sort of. Um, in addition to active, so there's other data there as well, and you can quickly see um, this sort of key information. That sounds like two tremendous resources. When advisors are doing their own investment research, uh, based on just having even those two sources available, are they at a disadvantage compared to the big Wall Street firms in terms of access to some of the other information or research? Not only based on cost, but just availability. Well, I think the internet really has leveled the playing field in terms of information availability. The kind of stuff the average person can get their hands on for more or less free online is increased drastically over the last couple of decades to the point where stuff that would have been almost impossible to get 20 years ago is quite readily available today. Um, you still have the issue that you know your, your average person um, is going to have a lot of time constraints. And so even if they, they knew all these great details about funds, they're going to have the issue of, well, you know, I have to live my life. I'm not a full-time evaluator of mutual funds, but there are definitely some basic rules of thumb to follow with information that can be readily gathered. That'd be very useful to anyone. Let's talk about those for a minute. If if, we know people are time constrained and that's why advisors like us and all of our listeners have a job. (laughs) But uh, if there was one source for solid, reliable investment data that you could go to and be readily assured that you pretty much covered the waterfront in terms of the the broad strokes of what you needed to make some decisions. Uh, what would that source be? Well, I think the top source, especially in terms of just you know having accurate data covering all the funds in the universe um, and something that's readily accessible to large groups of people is something like Morningstar. You know, there's a lot of debate about whether like, you know, the Morningstar ratings, how much value they have, but just as a general source of lots of information about any given fund, um, Morningstar is an excellent source for that. Morningstar and other guides tend to measure an awful lot of information. And it, it can be look daunting when you first open what used to be a guide and is now an online uh, location, what metrics would you most trust uh, to guide your selection of investments? If you, if you had to look up 10 funds and you were looking at one element of each of them that would sort of make the yay or nay determination, what's the metric you're really focused in on? Uh, so a, a primary metric that's I, I always focus on when I'm thinking about a fund, again, goes back to active share. Um, in particular, um, you know, we talked before about how high active shares or high active share funds tend to outperform in the future. And, and there is some debate. There's papers going back and forth arguing about the validity of that claim. Um, but I think a more generally accepted thing that probably 
people on both sides of that prior debate could agree on is that when you look at very low active share funds that are still charging pretty high fees, um, they are sort of a universally bad buy. Um, so if you're looking for sort of metrics to trust, something that you definitely want to look up before you make any investment, you'd want to check and make sure that the fund that's claiming to be actively managed is actively managed. So now you can look at it almost as a ratio between the active share number and the fee structure. And the best bargain is the guy with the highest active share and the lowest fee. Exactly. And actually, if you go to the, the website I mentioned before, activeshare.info, you can make that calculation. It's called the active fee. It considers for the money you're paying, how much active management are you getting? Value investors got it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it never seems to change. Uh, we're, we're coming up on the end of our session. If you could pick one nugget of information to leave with our listeners on in, investing in mutual funds based on all your research and, and all your information, what would it be? Um, so I, I think what I said before is a key point about making sure you're getting what you're paying for. Um, you know, I don't want to make an argument that active's good or passive is good. But I think it's important is making sure that you, if you're investing in an actively managed fund and paying a high active fee, that you're getting a lot of active management. And that if you're investing in a passive fund, you're paying a low passive fee. So like you mentioned before, it's about getting good value for your money. Make sure that you're not paying 1.5% per year for what is effectively a passive fund. And if you're a passive fund, well, a lot of those are charging expense ratios of near zero. So you should be paying 1.5% per year to that fund just for that either. <laughs> that, that's buyer beware and do your homework. I, I can hear all the employees out in the hall running to go check their 401k plans to see if they've got a good expense ratio now. Uh, sounds like sage wisdom, Tim. Thank you so much for sharing all your information and, and your research with us. I'm sure all our advisors are going to review most of their investment recommendations with an eye towards active share. We've been talking with Tim Riley, assistant professor at Sam Walton Business School and published researcher on active share as a measure of mutual fund performance and how mutual funds often stray from their benchmarks to improve the appearance of performance. If you have questions regarding any of Tim's research, including those two websites he mentioned, or anything else you've heard on this program, please feel free to drop us a line at 4advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com, and we'll get you some answers. I'm your host, Dave Polis. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to 4Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. 